me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 16, I chatted with Avlock Coley, CEO of Angelus Venture, about how the startup funding ecosystem is changing, the geographic future of Silicon Valley, the launch of rolling funds, which have taken the venture industry by storm, and the launch of my seed fund, Paradox Capital, which is managed on the Angelus platform. Prior to joining Angelist, Avlock was a repeat founder himself. One of his startups, Fastbite, was acquired by Square in 2015. You might be asking, what is a rolling fund? A rolling fund is a new type of investment vehicle that allows fund managers to invest in startups at their discretion on behalf of investors often referred to as limited partners or LPs who contribute to the fund on a quarterly subscription basis. A few of the benefits of rolling funds are the ability to continuously fundraise, more flexibility for both fund managers and LPs, and the ability to do marketing publicly around your fund. This was a very informative discussion and it got me really excited about the future of building, operating, and investing in startups. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Avlock Coley. Before we jump into today's episode, are you a founder of a startup? Do you need funding for your startup? The good news is I've launched a seed fund called Paradox Capital. The mission is to arm founders beneath and beyond Silicon Valley's radar with early checks and expert advice to build the next great companies anywhere. If you're an early stage founder, reach out to me at paradox.vc or send me a DM on Twitter and let's chat. Now let's get back to the episode. Well, Avlock, thanks for joining me on the Paradox podcast. It's an honor to, to get to speak to you today. Yeah, excited to be here. So I guess my first question, as the CEO of Angelus Venture, you're sort of at the forefront of a lot of interesting trends in the realm of startups and investing in startups. And we've obviously had a wild year that we're still not done with, but we're approaching the end of it. What's the most surprising trend that you've seen emerge in the last 12 months? Yeah, this is going to be interesting to say, but it's actually the velocity at which rolling funds are starting and rolling funds are scaling very, very quickly they're actually turning out to be a large percentage of the activity on the AngelList uh, platform. Hmm. And I've just been blown away at how quickly they're contending with uh, our traditional fund product and traditional fund investments going into companies. Uh, so I'm very excited about seeing where that goes in, in 2021. But I'd say that's the uh, most surprising trend I've been in the middle of. And we'll talk more about it later. I, I am also one of the folks that's also starting a rolling fund as if you need another person starting one. But one thing that's fascinating, maybe this relates to what you're seeing in terms of the level of activity, is amongst other rolling fund operators, 
there's sort of just the spirit of collaboration that maybe feels a little bit different than if you're a traditional venture firm, either you win the deal or you don't, either you lead the series A or you don't. And the rolling funds are small enough that you need to collaborate to fill these rounds, right? And so yeah. even though my fund launch is January 1st, we're recording this uh, a couple of weeks before, just as I'm having conversations with other fund managers and looking at deals and so forth, there's a real spirit of collaboration on evaluating deals, sharing deals, helping founders, that to me feels a little bit different or my sense is it's different than what you see in other areas of the investing world. Are you kind of seeing some of that on, on your side? Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the rolling funds, a lot of the rolling funds we have today are folks who by definition want to participate in rounds, not lead rounds. And when you participate in rounds, it's a positive sum game. Uh, for you to win doesn't mean someone else has to lose. You can win and others can win. And in fact, you actually want to uh, bring in and loop in other fund managers into a deal because in that way you can help make that company successful together. Once you start leading rounds, you actually start getting into more zero-sum game where you have a certain allocation that you have to get and others can't get that allocation. So I'd say that's one reason why we see that. It's just the characteristics of, of how these funds are structured. The second is most of these rolling fund managers are uh, founders, uh, operators, by definition, they are in the mix of wanting to collaborate. What do you do when you're a founder? Well, you're looking to collaborate with a, with a team. What do you do when you're an operator? It's the same thing. So they bring that same ethos to their rolling fund as well. That's awesome. And we'll talk more about funds and rolling funds later on in the conversation. Switching gears slightly. So before joining Angelus, you yourself were a founder. And I'm curious, what do you miss about being a founder? And what do you not miss about being a founder? <laughs> it's the same actually for both, same answer. It's the blank canvas. When you're a founder, mm -hmm. uh, you start with a blank canvas. The future is yours. It can be anything. You just need to dream this amazing future. What I don't miss is the uncertainty of not knowing what that future is. And you're just sitting there and you're, you can get stuck in this, this negative feedback loop of, hey, you go off this idea, this idea, this idea. So you know, there's positives and negatives. It's, just, it's a trade-off at the end of the day. Yeah, it's a two-edged sword of excitement and anxiety. Excitement and anxiety are very, very similar feelings, but I think founders feel that to the nth degree. So just want to take a step back and, and, and let our audience get to know you just as a person before we talk more about you know, startups and technology and all that. Is there a story from your childhood or your growing up period that strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, I would say the one that comes to mind is very early on when the internet first came out, and I'm going to be dating myself here a little bit, I have this memory of the, these chat boards and these forums. And I just remember for the first time, you would log into this. And by the way, it was the worst interface. It was the text interface. It was like terminal. But even then, I was just fascinated. It was, it was like a window into this whole new world, even though it was literally blocked through this terminal window, but it didn't matter. I was endlessly fascinated. It would draw me in. You would talk to you know, strangers on the internet. It was like, wait, who are these people? Or you coalesce around certain interests. And I remember that just stuck with me. And I was endlessly fascinated for years after that with the internet, with technology, with software. And uh, that actually influenced what I chose as a profession, which is software engineering. That heavily influenced me. And it, it was just fun. It was this whole new world. And I'm pretty sure this is actually pre-Netscape too. Otherwise, I would have been using Netscape to kind of click around. So I was engaged with the internet from when there were basically message boards. So that's the thing that really stands out to me. That's awesome. If you weren't 
a software engineer turned founder turned now CEO of Angelist, what do you think you would be doing? What's the alternate universe? What's Avlock doing if he's not <laughs> a builder and a software engineer? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever considered that. At one point, I was very fascinated with nano engineering, but this is because I think I was watching too many sci-fi movies and I thought nano engineering was way ahead than where it was. And I actually remember in university, I pursued, I actually pursued a class and I was trying to TA and uh, I remember their professor was trying to explain to me like, no, 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 it's not actually there. We're still in the chemistry phase. And I'm like, uh, I don't get this. I, I think maybe in, a, in an alternate world, I would have stuck with that versus being a software engineer and building. I think, I think that's what I probably would be doing is in that field. Awesome. So my perception, and I feel like I followed, you know, loosely the story of Angel List kind of from the beginning. I remember Naval tweeting about it back in the 2010s, you know, and even maybe a little earlier than that. But it really feels like Angel List is leading sort of like a angel investing revolution, just the democratization of investing in startups, giving startups access to capital, giving folks with capital access to startups. It feels pretty monumental in the sense that I remember even when I was in college, just becoming aware of Silicon Valley back in the day. And the whole world seemed totally opaque to me. How do you raise money? How do you invest money? I mean, all that stuff when I was in my early 20s, really, I had had no clue about it. In fact, I had a small startup that I tried in college, went and pitched venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road. And you know, one of the blogs I, I read was Naval's Venture Hacks blog, because I was like, how do, you, how do you do this? I have no idea. I'm not learning any of this in school. And so it seems like over the last decade plus, 10, 15 years, Angelist has led this revolution. How did you end up joining Angelist and leaving the world of entrepreneurship, being a founder? And, and sort of what drew you into Angelist? Yeah. So it was a bit unexpected. In my background, I'd actually started a few companies. And one company was in logistics space, which was bought by Square in 2015. And I was there for two and a half years through the IPO. Uh, Then I'd started another company similarly in the logistics space. And I ran that for a year and a half and wrapped up an acquisition of it in January of 2019. And at that point, uh, I'd been operating uh, all in for 11 years straight. And like we were talking about earlier, you know, being a founder, there's, it, it, it is just ridden with anxiety, right? Constantly. And uh, I was like, okay, great. I'm going to just take a step back. And I basically retired at that point. I'd started angel investing in 2018, and I was planning to continue more of that and tinkering a little bit. Naval, who'd been a investor in, in actually all of my companies, approached me to consider stepping in at AngelList. And I'd never really dug into venture. I didn't really understand venture capital. I'd raise capital, but I didn't really truly deeply understand the industry. And so I didn't actually think it was the right fit for me, but we kept actually digging into the business, specifically the venture business at Angelist. And the more I dug in, and by digging in, it was you know just weekly deep dives. The more I dug in, it was fascinating at what some of the characteristics were of what Angelus had built with the venture platform. It had all of the makings of a large financial platform where you have one product that feeds into another and you have money moving through the rails. And I saw a similar pattern at Square where Square was starting to form its strategy of being a platform that we're now seeing play out in the public markets. And so I saw a lot of these characteristics when I was digging into the data with Angelus of great, you have this product and feed in this product. And we're literally sitting with money in, our, in the rails. Money is the core piece that stitches everything together because for all the funds, we manage all the banking infrastructure as well. 
And once that hit me, I was hooked. I was just like, okay, I see this. And you know, there were two main reasons why I ended up joining. One was qualitative, which was just being at the center of all information flow, right? We are literally at the center of tech more so than even when I joined. We are literally seeing the future with all of these startups getting funded. We are seeing what the world is going to look like five, 10 years from now, which is, it's amazing. And second is a, a quantitative piece, which is really the upside that was there was just vast, right? Because once you have a financial platform and you're building products that feed into other products that help you differentiate because you have this, you know, this one suite for your customer to come to you, once all of these things start playing together, you have a business that can grow very, very quickly and start compounding. So those are the two reasons I, I ended up saying yes and joining the company. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'd argue that not only are you seeing the future because the companies of the future are getting funded on AngelList every day, every week, every year, you're really arguably accelerating in the future too, because you're building the piping that used to exist on these legacy systems, whether it's contracts from, you know, some of the famous law firms in Silicon Valley, or whether it's, you know, sending wires and founders figuring out how to do that instead of having like a platform to manage all this through. So I can see why that would be incredibly interesting. I think the other thing, just uh, personally having interacted with your team over the last handful of months, setting up my own rolling fund is as a full-time operator, you know, I'm the head of marketing at Fast. I have a day job that I love and I want to continue honing my craft as a marketer. Angel investing is something that I started just earlier in the year, so relatively new to it. But there is zero chance that I could run a fund on the side and still have a full-time job if it weren't for not only AngelList at the high level, but rolling funds in particular, just given the, the nature and the flexibility of that fund structure. Do you think that's a trend that's going to scale into the future? We've been kind of in this operator angel sort of trend for a while, but it feels like rolling funds in particular to circle back to where we kind of started on rolling funds. It seems like that's going to allow even more, like you said, operators, founders to spin up funds and invest and pull LPs in that are new to the process of being an LP. I guess the question is, how far do you see all of this going over the next, yeah. call it five years? Yeah. The, the common theme in everything we do is reducing friction. How do you reduce friction? So what you mentioned earlier with you know, our team being there, we're basically an extension of your firm, of your rolling fund. So we're able to help reduce the friction by having uh, credible team members that can help support you, whether it's in legal reviews or it's in providing guidance on how to fundraise, all of that. Then there's the aspect of reducing friction on fundraising itself where when we looked at the traditional fund product, which we also have, we really thought deeply about how do we help reduce the friction to raising capital? And we realized that, well, if you can just eliminate this need to have to raise in a big bang fundraise way, where you have to get an anchor and you have to close the fund, if you can just eliminate that, well, you just reduce the friction to fundraising. You actually make it more fluid, more continuous. And so that was the reason why we did rolling funds were it was very clear that you could reduce friction even further. So where we're going with it is looking for other ways to reduce friction. In 2021, we're going to actually start investing into funds. We've already done this a little bit. We're going to accelerate that. And we're also looking at how can we uniquely help with the deal flow problem? Because the big thing with venture investing is deal flow. You need to have great deal flow. So we think that we're very uniquely suited to do something about this. And you actually mentioned it earlier where rolling funds are all collaborative, right? We're People are kind of coming together. Well, us as being the center point for all of these funds, 
we think we can do something very unique to create a way for uh, fund managers to collaborate together. So our common theme in terms of what we're going to do is continue to reduce friction mm-hmm. every, everywhere we can so that we can help make you extremely successful and other fund managers very successful at investing. And we just take away all of the other frictions that are just unnecessary for you to worry about. So you can just focus on uh, making great investing decisions. So that's how we think about it. So we, we have a lot of very, very good ideas that we're going to be sharing in 2021. Yeah, I love it. I'm I'm getting more excited about 2021 just hearing about the roadmap a little bit. I think the other thing too is, and I think that Angelus has been a great voice and thought leader on this topic is, in my opinion, and I'm just speaking for myself, I'm not speaking for you, but these accredited investor laws are incredibly prohibitive for folks that want to generate wealth, right? It's like you have to hit some arbitrary income level or net worth level to be sophisticated enough to invest in startups. You have a lot of folks who are in the ecosystem. Maybe they're more junior in their career. Maybe they don't have a lot of money. Maybe they're paying off student debt. I mean, who knows? Maybe they have a family and they have to pay for childcare and they want to write, you know, 5K checks or 10K checks but you know they're not accredited and so forth. And I'm really hopeful that maybe over the next two, three, four years, we might start to see that change more. I think there's been some signs from the SEC that they've relaxed some of the restrictions there. But I think, especially if you care about things like income inequality and wealth inequality and all those things, prohibiting people from investing in one of the most incredible asset classes of all time seems like a, a bad way to, to solve that. How do you think about sort of continuing to, lobby is a bad word, but just advocate for the full democratization of investing? I think you're building a lot of technology that reduces the friction, but I think there's still regulatory barriers that keep people from participating in either side of the marketplace. How do you think about Angelus' role on that front? Yeah, well, you, you actually hit, you hit the nail on the head that this is actually a very, very important topic that most people don't spend enough time talking about. I actually have said uh, a few times in the past, you know, if I had access to something like a rolling fund or a traditional fund when I was a founder way back when, and I just invested capital into my friends' companies, I would have one of the best returning funds of all time because, you know, founders uh, attract like-minded founders. And when you have a way to invest, you can invest into your friends' companies. So that's one idea or one one way in which we're already doing something about it, right? We've launched rolling funds, reduced the friction, enable more founders and operators to start rolling funds. Now, what you're referring to is uh, on the LP side, on the investor side, there is still this restriction that you have to be an accredited investor. And the core theme here is really a, a question of equal opportunity. How do you provide equal opportunity and access into one of the best asset classes of all time? And so in that bucket, I think it's really an education uh, piece first, which is understanding how venture works. Uh, the reality of venture is that when you go to invest in just one or two companies, your likelihood of losing your principal is very high. And that's actually why I think in, in that case, the accredited investor rules are actually a positive. It is protecting investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you think about it from a diversification perspective, like if you can invest in enough startups, then you can actually reduce that risk. Then now all of a sudden you have something that you can take to the retail class, to the non-accredited investors. And we actually uh, do have a pretty a pretty healthy discussion with the SEC. Our Angelus relationship with the SEC goes all the way back to 2013 when we helped uh, write the Jobs Act. And so we've had multiple conversations and have provided our view and our data that we've actually published on the blog as well that 
when you go to invest in early stage venture, the number of investments you make is actually very important to reducing the risk. So mm. how, the way in which you can access venture is through a large diversified portfolio. And so the way in which we can solve for this problem is really providing more and more data around how you can invest into a pooled vehicle, like a fund that then goes into startups. That ends up being a much better way to access uh, venture. So it really comes down to do you allow deal by deal? I don't think deal by deal is a good idea for the retail asset class, but do you allow investments into funds? I think that's a good idea. And so I think it's just, it's an education piece, but I do agree. It's a very, very important thing that's just missing today. And, and frankly, it's getting accelerated right now. I mean, any companies that are uh, ending up on the right side of the pandemic are getting so accelerated mm-hmm. and guess who's winning? Like, it, the people who are accredited investors and above, they're yep. the LPs, they're winning and everyone else is locked out. They can only access it when the companies go public. But by that point, you know, a lot of the value has already been generated now. I still think a lot of these public tech companies have a long runway to go just because of massive market sizes, but there's still a ton of value that is locked up right now in the private markets that only mm-hmm. accredited investors can access and is a very important thing for us to figure out. Yeah, fully agree. That all makes sense. I think another reason too, why it's important, we talked about investing in funds on the LP side and investing as an angel directly into companies, which is much more difficult to do. The other reason why I think allowing smaller checks into companies is important is from the founder perspective, right? So if I'm an early stage founder and I'm raising a seed round, you know, sure, I probably want one or two investors that have a lot of skin in the game that will help guide me towards, you know, my next round, series A and so forth. You don't want, you know, a thousand, thousand dollar checks and then nobody really cares. But anecdotally, and you know, I've been I've been small checks into rounds myself. I think that you end up getting a disproportionate amount of value from a lot of those small check angel investors, right? So if I'm an early stage founder and I'm looking for every advantage I can to help build my company, I might want to use one of your SPVs to fill the cap table with a bunch of smaller investors that are going to deliver a disproportionate uh, value back to me as a founder. And then that allows them to not only learn and have a great experience, but also get experience angel investing. So I think everything you said makes uh, a ton of sense. I'm excited to see what happens there. Shifting gears a little bit, but staying within the realm of investing in fund managers, you know, every fund manager has totally different strategies. And I remember, I think you launched Rolling Funds back in February, but it really kind of took off and kind of got into the zeitgeist over the summer. And I remember Sahil tweeting about it and, and Cindy, I've talked to Cindy a little bit about it and a few other folks that were kind of at the tip of the spear when Rolling Funds got traction over the summer. And the great thing is, and I've talked to probably a dozen rolling fund managers over the last couple of months, but they all have completely different strategies. Sometimes they have a second GP that's partnering with them. Sometimes they're focused on a very specific sector, no sector at all. What do you think though are some of the common traits that make a good fund manager? You've seen a lot of data. You probably see some of the best data in the world on this. What are some of the common traits despite all of those different strategies that they're all deploying? I would say the most common trait is they have a very strong network and judgment and are constantly looking to be very helpful to founders. And the reason that ends up being very, very important, it's all related, right? When you have this group or this cohort of people that are starting rolling funds, you have these founders, you have these operators. Uh, they, you know, the reason founders choose them is because they're bringing a very specific skill set to the company to help amplify the company. 
And that skill set, that can be quite varied, right? So that there's just no commonality in what the skill set is. Like in your case, uh, you'd be bringing in the marketing mindset, right? Really helping a company accelerate that piece. For Sahil, it can actually be the product mindset, right? That's actually where he, he, he thrives. But the common theme that we've seen is just the sheer helpfulness of the fund manager to make sure that the company is successful and they can get to the next stage. Now, obviously what happens as a company grows, they, they get a lot less use out of the early investors. That's natural for all companies as they grow. They're just different set of problems uh, to solve for. But at the earliest stages, at pre-seed, seed, you're really just trying to solve for a product market fit. And then you're pulling in your investors to help with any you know, recruiting or helping with any product feedback or marketing. And you're really looking for the right group of investors to bring together. And we're actually, what we're seeing is that the rolling fund managers are that group of investors. They, they are the helpful people. They're the ones that actually were writing their own personal checks into companies and now starting the funds to amplify the check size. So going back to what you said earlier, where you were writing smaller checks, well, guess what? Your check size just got amplified because you have a rolling fund. Sahil was the same thing. He was writing smaller checks. That same behavior, well, just got amplified because now he's writing larger checks. So that's the common trait. You have these folks who were writing smaller checks are now able to amplify it, but they still bring with them that same common trait of like, great, I'm here to help. I'm going to dig in. I'm really going to help you make your company successful, which is also another reason why we're just seeing, going back to what I mentioned earlier, the trend of rolling funds just taking off not only the number of people starting them, the capital that's scaling under management, and then just the access they're getting to amazing companies. It's wild. And I've been amazed at how quickly everything is changing with this. And it all makes sense looking at it backwards, of course, but that is the common theme with the fund managers. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you're describing, especially in terms of folks that are really interested in being helpful, not only with money, but expertise and, and guidance and so forth is that is the not so secret sauce of Silicon Valley. That is the flywheel that makes this whole thing work. And obviously, we're coming off a big week of IPOs, the Airbnb IPO and the, the DoorDash IPO, Open Doors IPOs next week. I'm excited about Amazing. excited about that one. Um, <laughs> but what would be your advice to folks that are part of a great outcome like that? They're totally new. They haven't done any angel investing or anything like that, but they're interested in taking some small steps to get educated or to get warmed up either as an advisor or an angel investor or a small LP. What would be your advice on where to start if you're, you know, DoorDash employee 250 or Airbnb employee, you know, 300 and, and you have some liquidity that you want to invest back into the system? Yeah, it, it really depends on your goals. If you're looking to get exposure to the industry or early stage tech, I would absolutely recommend investing behind uh, certain fund managers, right? Whether it's a rolling fund or traditional fund, just invest behind a fund manager. If you're looking to engage with a company and work with the founders and really dig in and help them, then I would recommend starting off with, you know, with actually making investments directly into companies. And then from there, starting a fund. So it really depends. What, what are the characteristics? You're, you're an LP if you're thinking about it more as a return and you're looking to grow your capital. But if you're really looking to dig in, you get joy from working with founders, then I would look at becoming a GP and starting a GP as an acronym for general partner. It's, it's an industry term for starting a fund. That's, that's how I would think about it. It's, if it's just a return, invest behind other funds. If you're looking to engage start a fund and, and you can start small and grow, grow it from there. That's how I think about it. And because you know, starting a fund and investing behind companies and working with founders, unless you truly enjoy it, 
it's tough. You, you, people will call on you at any point and you should be there to help them. And obviously I'm biased. I've been a founder myself. So I've been on the other end of it where you have a tough problem and you're really looking to engage with investors. And I think that's actually, I think it's a very important part of being an investor. Uh, so again, it's a question of, do you want to take on that role? But based on that, I would, I would choose either being just an LP or being a GP. For sure. And maybe all of the above at some point, you know, in a sequence and order that makes sense for where you're at. That's, that's a great answer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and there's actually a good, I, I just saw a tweet from Nivi. I'm going to paraphrase it. And I thought he did a pretty good job of summarizing it. He just said, all these roles are blending where mm. the founder, the LP, the GP, like all of it's just blending. It doesn't need to be separate. It, what he's basically right. saying is you can be someone who does all of it, right? Like I am, I've, you know, I've been a founder. I'm also an LP in many funds. Uh, and, and, and you're also a rolling fund manager, right? On the rolling fund page, I, I see your fund next to mine. This is great. <laughs> exactly. So there are all these roles that are blending, which by the way, if you think about even 10 years ago, they never, it was never blended, right? You'd yeah. have your founder. Okay, great. You're an LP. Okay, great. You're, you're, you're a partner at a fund and pretty separate. And to yep. go yep. from one to the other is this long run of process. Now, when you reduce friction, it just blends in and now you yeah. can actually assume multiple roles. And that's the beauty of friction or removing friction. You're able to drive that innovation. So now people can assume those multiple roles. So that's been the fascinating thing to watch over the last uh, decade. I really wish uh, rolling funds existed actually a decade ago. That would have been- Oh, completely. <laughs> would have been good for founders, would have been good for investors and LPs as well. Yeah. The blurring of those lines is, is fascinating to watch. It's probably like the macro trend that's really interesting in this space. One thing yeah. we talked about before we hit the record button a little bit is just the future of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, the place, Silicon Valley, the ethos, Silicon Valley, the philosophy. And there's been obviously tons of debate on Twitter. Everyone's announcing their moves to Miami and Austin and, mm -hmm. and so forth. Part of what gets me a little excited, in fact, this actually relates to the thesis of my fund, which is semi-obvious at this point. Obviously, the pandemic broke the location monopoly on needing to start a business in San Francisco. So whereas even as early as a year, year and a half ago, you had to make the case to investors for why you weren't moving to the city. Now you would have to make the case for why you would stay or why you would be moving to the city to start a company. I think the thing that I'm excited about is, you know, I did a deal with a founder in Tampa, Florida recently, a small angel deal, personal deal prior to my fund launching. And this is someone who, you know, he's in Tampa, Florida, building a great company, great storyteller, uh, great vision for what the product needs to be. He's just not here and he just doesn't have the network. And so even founders that are here, everyone's raising over Zoom, you know, but a founder that's physically here and has the network has the edge. I'm interested through my fund in giving folks like that access to not only the capital, but some of the expertise that's still centralized here, folks like yourself that have built and scaled companies before to help get them through those first couple innings of the company. So I guess part of what I'm excited about is just seeing more people building more companies all over the world. And Angelus is powering, again, this infrastructure, this ecosystem that's going to allow folks in Tampa, Florida, or Ohio, or Kenya, or wherever to get to get funding, right? Because you're removing the friction in every possible direction. What's your best guess on how this plays out in terms of the future of Silicon Valley? Where do you think this is all going over, say, the next five to 10 years? Yeah, it's a tough question. And it's a tough question because the initial conditions are changing so rapidly every single day. You know, if you'd asked me this when the pandemic first started, it would have been, well, no, of course it's San Francisco, right? But now we're almost, you know, <laughs> like nine months in. And now just so much has happened since the initial conditions have changed so much that the current state is, well, it seems like Miami and Austin are now going to come up at the as the other tech hubs. 
I think depending on how much longer the lockdown lasts and how long it takes for the vaccines to get rolled out and for office culture to come back to normal. And to be clear, I don't think normal is what we had before, referring to normal as not at home. But I do think that people have a, a couple of days a week is probably yeah, exactly. where I'm going to land. Yeah, two, yeah days exactly. A week. I know with Angelus, we actually had a, had a decision to make. We were in the interesting position where we could have let go of the office because our yeah. lease was coming up. But the majority of the company was like, we yeah. don't want to go to the office. Well, I hope you, I hope you renegotiated because the, the rents have we come did. down, you know, 25, 30%. It's a great time. It's a great time to lock down yeah. your office for 2021. I feel like it's a contrary thing to do right now. It's totally. Like have an office, uh, but it's a beautiful office. It's just. Yeah. No so I, I think the way it's going to play out, at least given the initial conditions as of right now, and assuming that things come back to normal, let's say in the six in the next six months to nine months where people feel a little bit comfortable meeting in person. I think the way it's going to shape out is then going to look like San Francisco is still a tech hub, Austin's a tech hub, Miami's a tech hub. Because what's happening is there is a forced, like every day that goes by that San Francisco is in lockdown. And with all of the decisions that the government's been making recently, the question is why? Like, why even stay here? So the frustration level just keeps increasing and we're stuck at home and it's like the city is so anti-tech. It's like, why stay here? So I, I think sure. what's, what's happening right now is a bleed. Now, the question is, how long is the bleed going to last for? And I think what's going to stop the bleed is actually us opening back up. And so I think all of this is, is hinged on how long does it take for us to open back up? And in that time that it takes for us to open back up, the bleed is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the longer the bleed, the higher the probability we're going to get more tech hubs like Austin and Miami are right now. Obviously, New York's been a tech hub as well. So I think the way this is going to shape up, given what I'm seeing today, is we're now going to get other credible tech hubs coming up. And if it goes longer then we may get even more. So that's my current prediction. And yeah. probably, to be very clear, I think it's net positive. I think it's great. No, yeah. I, first of all, I love the framing and I think it is positive. I do think it's good for Silicon Valley to be geographically more diversified, right? It's just, it's too risky to have an ecosystem that's generated so much value. Obviously the people that are in San Francisco that hate tech would, would disagree with that framing. But to have that all centralized in one city, in one state with a lot of political risk doesn't make sense. And I think that part of what's interesting about the pandemic and work from home culture and remote culture is, you know, we're now competing as individuals against people all over the world that are talented. You know, at Fast, we've hired folks all over the world for all kinds of work, engineering work, design work, you name it. And it's great. It's awesome. But similarly, cities are now competing against each other. And we referenced again before we hit the record button, the mayor of Miami that's just like hammering away on Twitter with his very welcoming and positive message, you know, saying, yeah, come yeah. to Miami, build your tech. So I think it's good. I think, you know, part of the genius of the American system was laboratories of democracy, having different states try different things. I think that it'll actually help maybe turn California around a little bit to see what some of these other states, how they're approaching it a little bit differently. That's my hope. And so, yeah, I, th I think it is net positive. The extent to which the Bay Area is diminished as a tech hub relative to other tech hubs is a function of how long we remain locked down and the political sort of morass getting cleaned up in the city of San Francisco and, and the state more generally. Yeah, I'm hoping that the second order impact of this is that the cities, as they're competing more heavily in the 
and the bleed continues to happen. And hopefully that's enough of a wake-up call for San Francisco and California to go, okay, great, let's now engage. You know, it kind of reminds me actually of San Francisco's incumbent with a low NPS score. That's but, right. Uh, you know, but you have no other choice. It's kind of like Comcast, right? You have no other choice today. Yes. And then you have the the scrappy startup that's coming out and like and the CEO just like plugging in on on Twitter and plugging in saying, okay, why not? Why not <laughs> totally. Um, that's what it reminds me of. So yeah. hopefully NPS yeah. score increases for- Yes. Years. Hopefully we bottomed out on our NPS score. <laughs> cool. So this is something that I do with some guests and you can pass on this if you want, but it's just turning the tables where you can ask me any question you want. And obviously I don't know what it's going to be, which is part of the fun of it, but what yeah, question I, do you have for me? And then we'll, I have some more questions for you after. Yeah. My question is, if you were to describe the open door culture in one word, what would it be? Mm, that is a great question. Debating between two. I think the word I would choose is ownership. And there's a couple layers to that. I mean, obviously from a customer facing standpoint, you're dealing with home ownership, right? The idea of owning a home, selling a home, buying a home. Again, removing friction from that process. You talked about removing friction before. That's essentially what Open Door is in the business of doing is removing friction from buying and selling a home. And as it relates to what we just talked about, people moving, you know, owning a home is great. It's like for most people, it's the vast majority of your net worth. It's it's your biggest investment. But when you need to move for a job, say from Dallas to Charlotte, North Carolina, your home can become an anchor around your neck towards making that move towards an opportunity. So ownership has a flip side, right? And I think by making it easier to do that, you're allowing people to move towards opportunity. So that's a little bit of the external customer facing cut on that answer. And then internally, I would just say, you know, I joined when there were maybe 60-ish people. I was a second marketing hire. And there was just a tremendous culture of building and owning your work and just taking it from zero to one. Mm -hmm. And part of what was so cool about that was the business was, and in, in, I've been gone for six months, so I can't speak for today, but it's like such a hard business to build because it's so complex. It's like building like an Amazon or something, right? I, mean, I know Uber was very complex, but Uber didn't own the atoms, right? It's still super hard business to build, obviously, but just like so complex that it was incredibly humbling. So the nice thing was a lot of the folks there were kind of this combination of smart and humble, mm -hmm. and but always willing to take ownership of their work. And I think that and that also relates to equity too. Part of the magic of Silicon Valley is when you give all your employees equity, it creates that ownership mentality, which creates sort of this ownership reality in, in how you operate the business. So yeah, that's great. I love that yeah. ownership mentality creates the yeah. reality. Yeah, I think I tweeted that. I think I tweeted that once. That's an old tweet rattling around in my brain. So the last three questions are questions that I ask every guest. You can take it in any direction you want. No right or wrong answer. The first one's the, the famous Peter Thiel interview question. What's yep. something that you believe that most people don't? Yeah, I'll answer this question just from a perspective of um, a founder and having been a founder and, and most founders don't believe this, but it's, if you're not growing quickly and you're not sitting there you know, chasing a dragon by its tail, you don't have product market fit. And I say this coming from having started companies like that, where you know, you're always looking for the next optimization. Oh, if I do paid ads and I do this, it's growing, great, you're growing. But if you're not growing unbounded with you know, a ton of people just banging down the door, you don't have product market fit. And all that matters is just focusing on that problem. And it really is, you're either pre-product market fit or post. Nothing else matters. You can literally mask over all problems if you just have product market fit. That's so true. That's a truth torpedo for a lot of people to hear. Because I feel like everyone wants that product market fit and you can trick yourself into thinking that you do have it. 
once you've seen it firsthand, you know what it looks like, what it feels like. There's the famous Mark Andreessen blog post, right? All that matters or the only thing that matters where he kind of defines it in that canonical blog post. But it's true. It's like in product market fit, the market's pulling the product out of your company Mm -hmm. despite all of the flaws. And you're just trying to fix things along the way. You're not optimizing your way towards, you know, incremental growth that's going to compound into some magical outcome at the end. And yeah, most, most companies don't have it. That's why it is so rare. And that's why it is rare for these companies to scale to the moon. Awesome. I, lo- I love that answer. What's a problem that you're concerned about that most people aren't? I would say the U.S. printing its way out of a pandemic is deeply concerning. I understand all the reasons why we're doing it, of course. But with other options available now, like Bitcoin, the thing that I keep thinking about is, well, what are the set of things that would happen where US is not the world's reserve currency? So these are all the things I'm like deeply concerned about. And I don't think there's enough discussion on it because there's just this idea that US will always be at the top and it's always going to be the number. Sure. But what if it's not? Because right now, as we're printing our way out of a pandemic, who's paying for it? It's not just the US, it's actually the world. Mm-hmm. So that's the piece I'm like pretty deeply concerned about. Yeah. And actually the most recent episode with Mike Maples, I asked him the same question. He had almost the exact same answer. And part of what's frustrating about it is, you know, I think all three of us agree. It's a concern that I definitely share. I have a two and a half year old daughter and I think about what's her future going to be in a world where we just printed our way into oblivion. And the part of the problem is it feels like almost nobody cares about it. It's like the big elephant in the room. No one talks about it. Politicians don't talk about it. People don't talk about it. People are arguing on Twitter about stupid stuff, like whether Calendly links are bad or good, but it's like, we got a real systemic issue here. And I don't know how we solve it, but it's like, it's the same thing we went back to at the beginning where it's a bit of a, an education problem. People need to be aware that it's a problem in order for it to change. Yeah, I don't um, think people really understand and deeply understand how like the world works and how these things are connected. And even even to the point of, well, great, we should just keep printing money. And actually, the piece that I'm most worried about is we've now started printing money. Are we going to try and print our way out of every every other problem that comes up, right? Because great, we've been able to do it. Does that shift this idea of this being now a potential solution for other problems that happen in the future? So it's it's a very, I don't know what the answer is either, but it is a an open question that is just rattling around my brain right now as I'm just thinking about like, great, like how much of Bitcoin do you hold, for example, versus US dollar? And these are all, I never thought I'd be asking these questions ever in my lifetime, but yeah. It's like all the memes floating around Twitter. A tsunami is coming to like take out the Bay Bridge and what's the solution? Print money, lower interest rates. (laughs) The problem is those memes hit a little too close to home because that's kind of exactly what we do. Yeah. Yeah, plus one there. I'll caveat this last question by saying, I think advice can be very overrated in part Mm -hmm. because the person giving the advice may or may not have your best interest or they may not know about you. And I think advice is highly contextual, but I still like to ask the question, you know, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received uh, in your life? It's actually related to my answer to that first question you asked, which is the only thing that matters is getting the product market fit. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is just more of a, a rounding error, if you will. And as you think about the percentage of, of your time focusing on something, you really want to focus on uh, building an amazing product that absolutely delights your customers. They can't help but use it. They'll use it despite the flaws. And it's so easy to skip past go when, if you don't hit that, right? It's like, oh, nice. You have some people that like it and you're growing, 
But no, no, no. If you're not growing in an unbounded way and people are hunting down the door, kicking down the door, you don't have it. So that actually, it, it, just, it just sticks with me. And it has consistently stuck with me, even as I think about growing AngelList. And it's not just about hitting one product market fit, by the way. Great tech companies will find multiple moments of building amazing products. Because if you're not building that next product, you're dead. It's just a question of how long it's going to take. So you have to always be ahead of that curve. You have to always think about, I mean, there's a good framing. I can't remember who tweeted this, but you're always looking for the next S curve, right? Mm -hmm. What is the next one that you're going after? Because it takes time to build it. It won't just happen. Your future a year from now is written today. Our future today for Angelus Venture was actually written a year ago. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, where are you investing? What is that next S curve? So that just has stuck with me. And then everything else is rounding error, scaling it yeah. to rounding error. But if you don't have that, you don't have the rest. Well said. I think we can end on that as the last question. If folks want to get in touch, maybe they want to invest in your rolling fund. Maybe they want to start a rolling fund. Maybe they're a founder that wants your rolling fund to invest in them. What's the best way for them to reach out? Do you use Twitter or are you smarter than me and you avoid Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I use Twitter, twitter.com slash Avlock, A-V-L-O-K. You can send me a direct message on there. Awesome. Well, I've super enjoyed the conversation. Really excited about what's ahead for AngelList and what you're building. And thank you. Thank you to you and your whole team for getting me set up with this fund that's going to launch January 1st. Super excited to see uh, what's in store over the next year. Yep. Great. Well, thank you for having me. And again, thanks for being a rolling fund manager. Thanks, Avlock. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. For episode number 15, I chatted with startup investor Mike Maples about breakthrough insights, a lesson from a fishing trip with his dad, stumbling into his first angel investment, Twitter, and a big issue facing our country that almost no one talks about. What I encourage entrepreneurs to do is, ironically, if you want to have a great startup at a breakthrough, don't start out by thinking of a startup. In fact, don't start out even by thinking of a market at all. Hmm. Think about inflections that you can become obsessed with, understanding in a very deep way, and then get out of the present and imagine uh, a set of scenarios that would be possible in different alternative futures by virtue of these inflections. And so, like, what is an insight really? An insight is a bet. An insight is something in the future that is more probable to happen because of these inflections than people living in the present realize. It seems present improbable, future more probable than people realize. And on some level, the asymmetric upside of being right about the bet is where you have an awesomely powerful startup. And the better price that you're paying for that bet is a function of the power of the insight that you have. And so being non-consensus and right is important. But it's not about being wacky contrarian in the present. It's about arbitraging your insight about a different future that's more likely to happen than people living in the present understand, right? That's that's the big idea. And then you kind of ask, well, what's the one that fits me the best? You know, so like, mm. you know, I like to say some insights are plausible, like Okta and single sign-on for cloud. Some are possible, you know, like the Mosaic browser when Mark Andreessen did it. And some are preposterous, like Elon's startups. Yeah, you know, SpaceX. Car, SpaceX, yeah. blast rockets into outer space. And so, you know, you may believe that that somebody can blast rockets into outer space, but you may say, I'm not sure I'm that guy. 
One of the interesting tensions about what you just mentioned was kind of the Steve Blank customer development model versus say the backcasting model. And if I think of a really famous, you mentioned this concept of like a seer, someone that kind of lives in the future and actualizes it, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't doing customer development to figure out the iPhone, right? The iPhone was this thing that was beamed from 10 years into the future to all of us in 2007. And he, he may have done some customer development, but I think he largely abhorred doing customer development. So I love the tension between those things. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself. Hey, thanks for sticking around a few extra seconds. Just wanted to reiterate that if you're an early stage founder and you're in the process of fundraising, my seed fund Paradox Capital is actively investing in founders all over the country and in fact, all over the world. The plan is to invest in at least 12 founders this year, probably many more next year. Just head over to paradox.vc to learn more and I'd love to chat. Take care.